Now I'm going to invite up uh, Larry and Jorgen. They're going to read Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Pray for us, and then we'll get going. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who is with me, was not falsely circumcised, for he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield the in its submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we so thank you that the truth of the gospel has been preserved, Lord, and uh, that we are recipients of that grace. And uh, I pray that we would walk in it, be witnesses to it. I pray that you would bless the speaker uh, to be able to present your words in your way. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, gentlemen. But now I have a dilemma, because I think you read chapter 2, 1 through 5. Yeah, you did. And so my dilemma is, now do I preach on chapter 2, verse (laughs) 1 through 5? Or stick to my notes, which are uh, chapter 1, 1 through 5? Stick to the notes? All right. Which you would do well to go, wait, 2, 1 through 5, because last week was 1, 1 through 5. And you might be asking yourself, didn't we do one, one through five last week with Easter? Do you guys remember? It was Easter last week. It feels like six years ago. I don't know why. Um, yes, it was this text, one, one through five last week. And, and I felt like with the kids and distractions and all of that, there wasn't enough attention paid. So we're going to do the same exact thing again. You ever get news that surprised you? I did. It was September of 2014. See, nobody did pay attention. I was, I was talking with Karen of how long to do that joke, like, in, in when people would notice. I feel right at home here. You do? So how quickly can we become Oh. <laughs> you guys already went to the class and had meetings. Now you're stepping forward? All right. Martin Lloyd-Jones taught uh, seven sermons on this text, so... I don't feel so bad mining two out of it. Um, If you like a a title, History, Foundations, and Life Together. We're going to do two sermons last week and this week out of these veins of gold. And then, like I said, we'll be going through Galatians for the next uh, chunk of months to the end of July. The history of Galatians. And I... Perhaps this is just me, but I find it helpful to remind myself that these were real people in a real place at a real time. We can become detached from the text and the story of Scripture 
And especially for those of you that are familiar with God's word and church and life like that, it can just become a little bit rote and a little bit of a once upon a time in a land far, far away, which is understandable, but it was a people in a place at a time. And this letter comes as one of Paul's first letters written from Corinth to a group of churches that were started by Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter number 14. There was transformation in these cities, in these towns. You go, great, no problem. And they lived happily ever after, but that's not the case because there were some non-Jewish, what, what was happening in this city is this. There was some non-Jewish, that is Gentile people who come to faith and they enter into a community of faith that has uniquely and specifically Jewish roots. So you have non-Jewish people and Jewish people coming together in this new community of faith that is known as Christian. And some problems arise and challenges and questions. What do we do about the law? They would ask. What about diet? How about circumcision? There was issues surrounding what it meant and how to be God's people in the midst of the world, which is really a, a tale as old as time. It, it's something that every church in every place across all history has to ask. What does it mean to be God's people in the midst of the world? How do we go about life with him and one another? And so what do churches do when questions arise? They form committees. It's what they often do. And so you have one of the first church committees, it's the council. In Acts chapter 15, verse 6 through 11, it says this, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So they convene. They go, what do we do about these questions about the law and circumcision? They go, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit not to place an additional burden on these followers of Jesus. So then, like churches do, they write things, letters back then. Uh, now it's an email that you get. And I don't uh, make any claim that the emails you get weekly from me are of any weight or importance compared to this one. Just need to put that out there, even though none of you were thinking that. Galatians, or sorry, Acts 15, 19 says, Therefore, my judgment is we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So you go, okay committee meets, a letter's written, it's sent off. Now, they all live happily ever after. And if any of you have been in church for any amount of time, the answer is no. That's never how it works. Because there were, in that day, Judaizers, they were known as, who caused quite a stir. 
And due to the pressures and influences in Galatian churches getting knocked off center, Paul's letter comes in hot. And and I think this is something that we'll see in bits and pieces, but if you read the letter as a whole, which I'd encourage you to do, or if you want, you can read a chapter every day and then have the Lord stay off and just get Galatians into your blood. Paul's letter is coming in hot. It's some of the strongest language that he uses in all of his letters, and he is frustrated and wants to get their attention. He's amped up because the problem isn't with the particulars or practicalities of their life. He'd observed restrictions, and and hey, you guys even read how, you know, that happened in chapter two. It's a little bit of a, a taste test for the coming weeks. He had Timothy circumcised in Acts chapter 16, which is a wild story that has always made me go, huh? Like, just imagine being Timothy and sign up for ministry and then, huh? Okay. Um, The problem wasn't the particularities or the practicalities. It was the addition to the gospel and dividing of God's people that was going on. It, It was these Judaizers adding to the gospel and dividing God's people. Scott McKnight, he's a theologian and professor up in the Chicago area. He says, Paul was against the legalism of the Judaizers because it usurped the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and forced all converts to become Jews. It was not what was done that rankled Paul. It was why these things were done that produced his quick reaction. The system is one of addition by subtraction adding to the gospel by subtracting the sufficiency of Christ and the Spirit. And so we see in the intro, uh, in verse 1, Paul, as he is, he, he's coming in explicit about what the gospel is, and, and that foundation is being led, uh, laid for the people. You see, when he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ, And God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. Though this pattern is uh, common in letters, Paul isn't wasting words here or, or just throwing out cliches. Again, he is laying the foundations of the faith yet again for these people. It's not formulaic, it's not routine, it's not cliche, though we often read it as that. It is foundational. And you can think of a foundation uh, that it's something that's laid that is critical to the integrity and structure of a thing, and we don't think about it until there's an issue with it. And Larry can tell you a story about foundation issues and how big of a pain they are, right? When you have issues at the foundation, it becomes problematic. So Paul is yet again showing them, bringing them down to the roots of their faith. And he writes, as Paul was preaching, and this is what the letter to the Galatians is all about, that whenever anyone believes in the crucified Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the risen Lord, that is already a sign that such a person is part of God's true people, no matter what the, per- the person's ethic or moral background may be. New believers from a Gentile background, Paul taught, were full members of God's people without the demand for circumcision. Nor did they need the other regular signs of the Jewish identity, the Sabbath, and the food laws. So this is the core message that is coming in Galatians. Faith and following Jesus together. That is the beginning 
of faith, that is the middle of faith, that is the end of faith, that is the totality of the Christian faith. Jesus and his people together. Keller summarizes in his book Galatians for you. He says, in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It is the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. We're going to hear him solving their issues, not through telling them to be better Christians, but by calling them to live out the implications of the gospel. Paul will explain to us that the truths of the gospel changes life from top to bottom, and that they transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. The gospel, the message that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope, creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience, and for love. And so you see this, the foundations of the faith are clear and they are to be built upon. Paul would say this in his letter to Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 through 15. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hay, wood, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul's writing that for the church, the only foundation for God's people is Christ. There's nothing else that can be laid. But then people come along and put all sorts of interesting things upon that foundation. And ultimately, there's one day that will reveal everybody's heart and intention that is going to be a beautiful and terrifying day for God's people. And it seems as though there's many uh, other minor events that God allows or brings that also test what we're building upon. For the church in Galatia, these Judaizers certainly put it to the test. Paul is saying that Jesus, in, in this foundational truth of the gospel, it's simple and it's comprehensive. And it's subtle and it's tempting for the church then and the church now to put anything or everything upon it. Today and then, what do we put upon the foundation of Christ? We put personality upon that. We put production upon that. We build all sorts of programs upon it. We prioritize pragmatics and just simply how we do things upon that. We've seen the church throughout history prioritize power upon that. And all of those things, in their way, they matter. Does personality matter? Yeah. God didn't make us all robots, so there's distinction among personalities and giftings and all. But is that ultimate? No. It's not foundational. Again, production, how things are, uh, to a certain degree, it matters, but is it ultimate? Is it everything? No. Programs, again, 
I know all of you parents that have kids in kids ministry right now are grateful for a kids program. It's not a bad thing. And I'm grateful for those that are discipling kids and coming alongside parents in that process. That's, that's great. It's good. We have gospel communities where people can connect outside of the gathering. There's, there's programs within the life of the church, but is that ultimate? No. How we do things, how we go about it, pragmatics. We've got to make all the transitions right and make sure that nobody feels uncomfortable everywhere. It's like, that's a fairy tale existence. That's not real life. And again, those things have their, their place and their time, but often, and I think this is especially tempting in a 21st century American church, to put those things as ultimate. I, I've been in the very long staff meetings that are all about this, and then how are we discipling people? There's no discussion around that. How are we prioritizing Jesus? There's no discussion around that. Again, the temptation is within all of our hearts. Again, then and now, to put other things upon the foundation of Jesus and prioritize those as ultimate. And why this matters and why it's critical is because these foundations are what then forms life together as God's people. So do you, are, are you guys like a, a good news first or bad news first type? You get the choice. This is a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. You want the good news first? Okay. Maybe I'll just skip this part altogether because it's dividing the church. It's in my notes first. Bad news. I'm a bad news first guy. Bad news. So here's the thing. We have this foundational truth. It's simple. It's comprehensive. It's Jesus. Okay? The bad news is that life together from that foundation is not easy. And because of the preciousness of God's people and, and uh, uh, the fragility of it all, it's susceptible to threats and forces that destroy it. How do I know? Because you, like me, if you spent any amount of time in church, you've been hurt by pastors, people, misunderstandings, your own sin, sin that's been done against you. To be a part of God's family is to put yourself at the front line of hurting and wounding. And that's why many of us have self-protective mechanisms where we go, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to go through that again. You, some of you tiptoe, understandably so, in any building. The fact that you're in here is, is an act of bravery, and I commend you for that. God's people have always been under threat. Again, because of the dynamics that I talked about earlier, because many of us come into it uh, not necessarily looking for life together, but we're hunting for kind of the individualized Christian consumerism that we want, that, that doesn't last very long. I'll just tell you right now, like if you're looking for the experience of the show, this is not the, the place in the gathering for you. We, we don't fade the lights. Uh, if we could let in more light from outside, we would. Sorry, Larry, there's not enough windows. Like I'd, I'd put them in here if we could. Um, that's just not, this, not who we are. So the bad news is it's difficult, it's slow, and there's plenty of enemies uh, that threaten life together as God's people. The good news, Anthony, since you wanted good news, you're yelling good news at the top of your lungs like a maniac, <laughs> is that it's very precious and protected by the promises of God. 
here's what's coming to these churches that are under threat, that are confused, that are struggling. What does Paul say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, uh, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As I've read this the last couple weeks and trying to get this in my mind and heart, what I've been reminded of is that Paul in his writing is, is basically uh, fulfilling and showing them the truth of Psalm 23 in their lives. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what David says in Psalm 23. In, in Paul's language, he's saying grace to you in peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we just sang this in the song, Reckless Love. There's something about that song that resonates, even though, again, it's terrifying. There's no mountain you won't climb up, no shadow you won't light up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me, which we go, that's really good news. God is relentless and forward in his love, and it's unending, and it's constantly flowing for his people, and whew, uh, We've experienced what that's like in God illuminating the darkness of our lives. God is so for his people, not just in theory, but in the actual events of the cross and resurrection where God's people find forgiveness forever. That there's an actual avenue for rest and peace and hope and forgiveness and lifting of shame and in the formation of God's people together. It, it happened in actual events that we celebrated last week where Paul reminds us yet again that Jesus gives himself for our sins. And there's a mysterious and amazing, majestic power that can deliver us from the darkness that is all around us and within us. He's pointing to and giving the motif yet again as it's all throughout scripture of the Exodus where God delivered the Israelites from slavery in the hand of Pharaoh into the promised land. He gives that same imagery for God's people today that he is delivering his people out of the bondage of slavery from sin into new life with him. And so this foundation is what forms God's people and gives them distinction in the midst of the world. And to me, this is why the church has endured against all threats throughout the ages. The threats from within of just people's stupidity and power hungriness and all of the threats that have come from within and the threats that have happened throughout history from the outside. God's church has endured. Rowan Williams, he was the archbishop of, is it, I want to say, not Cadbury, that's the eggs, Canterbury, Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm looking at Joshua, our resident church historian. Yeah? Okay. Nothing to do with the eggs, though they're delicious. <laughs> Rowan Williams says, the church is a community that exists because something has happened that makes the entire process of self-justification irrelevant. God's truth and mercy have appeared in concrete form in Jesus. And in his death and resurrection have worked the transformation that only God can perform, told us what only God can tell us, that he has already dealt with the dreaded consequences of our failure so that we need not labor anxiously to save ourselves and put ourselves right with God. 
And so there has been and there always will be a battle to live into this reality. To live into the, the preciousness and the promises of God. There's a battle to live into that. And, and there's, again, I, I say this all the time, this has been true all throughout history, and it's true today in a unique way. I came across an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal this week that kind of speaks to that shift that has happened in our day and time in culture. They did a study over the last 25 years over what um, importance Americans would give uh, to certain values, and I have a screen for you all. First is patriotism, then religion, having children, community involvement, and then money. Okay, so this is 1,000 adults conducted. And so patriotism, that is not um, nationalism, distinction there, right? That is a love for your country and a desire to uh, serve and see it flourish, patriotism. Uh, that's down big time. Religion, down big time. Having children, way down. Uh, community involvement, we're like, yeah, mm, not so much. And then money, and, and they tied into within the article work. And money and work have risen and what Americans most highly value. Now before we go, yeah, dumb people out there, first, look in the mirror. Is that true of you? And I think, if I'm honest, yeah, to a certain degree. I, I can see this is the shift that's happened in my own lifetime of what we value and treasure and hold dear. And this is part of a longer process that you can look at the, the history behind America and how we've, how, how an unfettered capitalism has negatively affected us as a society. Again, those words are chosen carefully, which is a rare occurrence for me. Unfettered capitalism has negatively impacted us as a society. We see that there. The results are startling. Maxwell Anderson, he says this, as a country we are turning away about this article from religion, from community involvement, from patriotism, from marriage, and from having children. We are turning towards money, towards work, towards politicizing everything, towards fewer interactions with people, towards more time online. How are our choices working for us? We're becoming less happy, more stressed, more depressed. And you might say, yeah, that's what I've been saying online all this time. <laughs> Inside and outside the church, we are sick. This has influenced how we interact with all relationships. And again, I, I've been a churchman long enough to see this interacting with my own heart and with God's people Inside, and, and I'm not attempting to, to browbeat you or go holier than thou or guilt trip anybody because, again, I, my heart is often complicit in these trends. And this is something that in the, the planting and birthing of this church union that we're attempting to work against. If you want just a convicting, beautiful book, When the Church Was Family by Joseph Hellerman, here's a little taster. Uh, he says this, they call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence 
over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. As Paul writes this letter to this church, his goal in the midst of their being cattywampus and threatened and off-kilter and off-center, he comes in hot to bring them back to the center of the truth in, in their lives together, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He comes back to it again and again, how this shapes and forms human history, how the kingdom of God comes in and unites people, how this story of scripture is one continuous one that culminates in the death and resurrection of Christ and his promise to return. And he's attempting to show them, and I hope that we will see too, there is a better way. There's a better way to be built up together and sustained in life by Christ. How does that happen? Well, this is going to be quite the journey for us all, but it comes back to ultimately, yet again, who we are in Christ and how that shapes then how we live with one another. That we are a people in a time and place with unique challenges and needs and, and just living in the day and age in which we find ourselves today. That there is polarization, there is isolation. We have mostly known, only transactional type relationships. Then we go, we can work against that by the power of the Spirit for something different and better. Not different just for different sake, but different in the sense of this has been God's plan and I think he knows better than we do. And so we press into what is most important and what that is, who that is, is Jesus. We prioritize Jesus above our own preference. We prioritize other people over our own particularities. And, and we look to the long view, we look to have a long view with one another. That people are weird, and really a group like us should not exist. With, and I mean this with all endearment, and again, I say this looking in the mirror first, all of us weirdos, don't belong together. And I get like this much of some of y'all's Facebook stuff. And I go, yeah, we really shouldn't. But <laughs> when we place those things aside in Jesus' center, it's actually a really beautiful, beautiful thing. It, it, it's something that is worth living for. It's worth dying for. It's worth pursuing together. And so this week, I, I've had my heart shift yet again and reminded, oh yeah, this isn't just a transactional, um, gosh, something you just do. This is where God's spirit dwells. This is how God forms his people. This is how relationships are made and sustained, and it's a beautiful thing. For some of you that have been deeply wounded, my prayer is this is where you can find healing and hope. For some of you that are deeply struggling, that this is a safe place that uh, can 
be alongside you in that process, that you can know other people and be known by other people and in that experience the love of God. You see, these foundations of the faith of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the way in which we experience that, and I don't want to step on toes, it's, it's not an ethereal feeling type thing, it's through one another. The deepest, most impacting moments in my life have not been simply by myself or in an experiential type mode. It's been people showing up again and again and again. As much as I give Anthony a hard time, it was a, a youth pastor 20 plus years ago, 21 years ago, that just showed up and stayed there and pointed me to Jesus. That's led to me attempting to just do the same. And the same for you guys. For you younger kids, I hope that you see imperfectly it's your parents that are attempting to just continue to show up, love, repent when they fall short, and, and lead you in a path of life in Jesus. For those of you that are on your own, single, that you would see that in community being with and alongside you in your season of life. That, that the church is this beautiful thing that is walking through the brokenness of life together and, and attempting in its best form to have Jesus as the center. To where we can mourn with one another when there's mourning to be done and we can celebrate 47 years. Jim, 47 years yesterday of marriage. Yeah. Denise isn't here. I'm guessing she deserves a little bit more of a bigger round of applause, but she's, she's endured. But every season of life that we experience it with the grace and truth of Jesus. And the good news, again, is that it will and he will forever reign. And so we'll see in this book how Paul addresses and aligns them. And my hope is that we, with the help of God's spirit, can, can push the truth of Jesus deeper into our hearts, that we can live that out together in, in fuller ways as we continue in this crazy journey known as church and life together. Uh, the old, is Augustine Augustine a church father, Josh? He's considered a church father, right? He's old enough. He says this, all earthly cities are vulnerable. Men build them and men destroy them. At the same time, there is a city of God which men did not build and cannot destroy and which is everlasting. Let's pray. And so our Father in heaven, we thank you for this good news that you came, Jesus, you lived and died and, and empower us and give us everything we need today in you. And Lord, because of our own hearts and, and the influence of the culture around us, we often lose sight of this truth. We come to church with a more consumeristic mindset than communal and covenantal mindset. And for that, would you forgive me, forgive us, and, and help us to see the, the beauty of this truth that you, Jesus, you, Jesus, are big enough and powerful enough to unite us with all of our differences together into a beautiful picture of your love. 
and that we wouldn't hold that to ourselves, but we'd look to extend that into the world, in our families, in our workplaces, with our neighbors, and that, God, you'd use this little community here in Prescott to proclaim the big and beautiful news that Jesus is alive and still providing and offering freedom and forgiveness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.